Hi, and welcome to our second remote edition of the Cenotopia podcast. This is our first attempt at video broadcast and premiere. Uh, we checked in down a little bit this time to go live, but hopefully in, in the next one we'll we'll try it or, or, or soon enough. Um, I'm here with Jim Ross, a fellow producer of the Cenotopia podcast and managing editor of Take One magazine. Jim, how's it going? Lots of reviews, lots of films are here. Uh, yep, yep. Um, I've probably watched more shows, to be honest. Like, a disappointing amount of film watching for me. I think there'll be a lot of people who would be a bit surprised at how little I'm actually managing to get through. Um, but we've, we've watched quite a lot for the show. Um, I was quite fond of some of them. And lots of recommendations to come. Not from all of us, I don't think, but we'll, we'll get to that <laughs> when it comes. Right. And I'm also here with Mark uh, Nelson, freelance film critic, regular contributor to our show as well. Mark, how are you today? Yeah, not too bad, Amanda. Um, I'm furloughed for the foreseeable, so I've got oh. time to split between uh, reading and watching as many movies as it turns out I was watching before lockdown anyway, so it's not too so, bad. So has it gone up or gone down? It's about or? the same. It's, it's, it's about the same. I was managing two or three movies a day anyhow, so um, yeah, it's, it's around about the same. Mark Mark would be one of those people who was disappointed in me, basically. Two or three films a day. I'm, I'm not I'm not hitting those numbers, let's just say I that. I don't think so. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, well, I guess the biggest news at, out in the industry is the announcement of this We Are One Global Film Festival. I think it's mm-hmm. mostly curated by the Tribeca Film Festival, uh, Jane Rosenthal. Um, what do you guys make of this? That means Cannes is supposedly somewhat on it but i hear that it's mostly um films maybe not maybe not the big blockbuster films that they were planning what do you guys think about this i think it's um it's definitely interesting i don't i i i don't personally think it'll be something that will persist much beyond this year i think this is probably a sort of a you know a bit of a band-aid on the whole thing just because so many festivals are being uprooted moved you know i mean there's a bunch that have been moved to different dates so far but i'd be surprised if they stay on some of those dates so it's it, it's refreshing it's a good way to see some of the the newer smaller films which, which if i'm being honest tend to be the ones that i'm interested in from can anyway like i like the big ones as much as anyone else but it's more the small ones that seem to you know come out of nowhere later in the year for a lot of people where like you'll find they were in some like random little strand in in can or something um so it's interesting i don't think it'll go beyond this year but i think it's a good way to get these films out there um because there's a debate to be honest as to whether they got much exposure to likes of can anyway when you've got all the blockbusters and you know the sort of like the big art house beasts kicking around anyway but mm-hmm. that's true and i also find the the way that a number of online festivals have been run it's usually um domain locked um so i'm glad that this one's going to be on youtube and supposedly free as much as far as i can tell um but the the words can involvement do tantalize me somewhat because there are a few movies that I'm uh, very much hoping to see. And if they end up on there as their premiere um, instead of being kicked back to 2021 or 2022, uh, that would be delightful. What what are what are those films? Um, I was thinking the two that I'm really looking forward to are uh, Memoria by Peter Pongwe Rosethical. And um, the other one is it's called Bergman's Island, I think. It's by Mia Hansen-Lova. Um, those are the two that I was, I'm very much hoping might end up there. If they don't, you know, I won't be heartbroken. I'm being realistic. But um, there's, there's an off chance, maybe. But they're not going to push the films back to a can release a whole year, are they? Was that the idea? Who, who, who knows? Yeah. 
I mean, let's be perfectly honest here. Some of the films that come out can, like, if you're not at can, you need to wait like the best part of a year to get them anyway. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, was it like was it? I mean, I realized there were previews and stuff anyway. But it was February before we got Parasite here. Mm-hmm. It was late February before we got Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and they were both in can like the previous May or something. So, the Whistlers were talking about today, and yeah, yeah was, you know exactly. So, I mean, there's, the there's a whole bunch of these things where if if depending on who picks them up and where where you live you can be waiting you know ages for these things anyway like we reviewed um what was it uh by the grace of god on the show like a wee while ago and that that was out at the berlin alley and like and mm. i didn't see it until like late 2019 i mean that's I, you know we've had these discussions before on the show like I'm, I'm a big fan of anything that increases access to these films and i think this is another way of doing it i don't think this is one that will persist as i've said but yeah i'm a fan of it i think it's a good i, I think it's a good idea well, so, and that starts in the 29th, so um, keep a lookout for that, and we'll, we'll, we'll keep you updated on, on more information that we hear about it. So today we'll be reviewing four films and series, starting with the new Star Wars series available on the new Disney Plus um, streaming service called The Mandalorian. Um, then we'll be reviewing The Whistlers, uh, which Mark mentioned was at Cannes last year. Um, and it was directed by the acclaimed Romanian director. And Mark, could you please pronounce that gentleman's uh, Cor- name for me? Sure. Corneliu Porimboyu. Yeah, I tried like five times before we started and I couldn't get it. But I have actually seen him in real life at Berlin Alley for, um, for another film. So, um, and I, I think, he, like you said, he, he was, this film was in a Cannes last year. So we'll be reviewing that. And then Mark and Jim will also be reviewing the Irish film Calm the Horses directed by Nick Rowland. Um, and uh, last but not least, we'll be reviewing Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, written and directed by Eliza Hitman. Originally, it premiered at Sundance, but it was also this year's Berlin LA Silver Bear Grand Jury Prize winner, I, I believe. And finally, I'll be sharing an interview I did with uh, John Watsky, who's a longtime projectionist and owner of the Ocala Drive-In Theater, which for a few weeks was the only cinema in the U.S. which was showing new releases, accounting for the only box office sales reporting during that time. Um, we'll talk to him, or I talked to him about his how his drive-in has flourished during these the, these crazy times, and um, you know some new safety measures that he's put in place, but also the general experience of drive-in movies. Um, plus our, we'll be doing our short film recommendations as we always do. And on this one, I'm asking one of the two of you to dare us to watch a film that's online right now that we can all see and review next time. So, uh, you know, one of those films you want to rewatch, um, or you want to dare us to, to try to. So that's all of that. That's all that we're going to be doing this episode of Cenotopia. So let's get going. Is the world more peaceful since the revolution? It is a shame that your people suffered. But bounty hunting is a complicated profession. said you were coming. They said you were the best in the Parsec. Would you agree?
Okay, so the first um, series that we're actually going to review today is um, Mandalorian, which is on the Disney Plus streaming. And uh, Jim, how long has the Disney Plus been? I I got my seven-day trial so we could check this out. And I think one of the things we're kind of doing is looking at what uh, streaming platforms are out there and sort of analyzing that as well. Um, How long has this been out for the UK? Do you know? Uh, so for the UK, it's not that long. I think as we speak now, it's maybe two or three weeks, perhaps. Um, might be more than that, actually. It was basically like part of its popularity, I think, in terms of sign-ups, is because I think it happened just as lockdown happened. So it's about a month, maybe, something like that. It must be something like that, because they launched with three episodes of this, The Mandalorian, and then they've released them one a week after that. They are now all available, hence the timing of this review, along with uh, the whole okay. May the 4th thing uh which uh, i hate because it's a pun but you know whatever we've got a star wars theme let's just go with it um so yeah it's been around for about uh about a month something like that but it's been going in the states um since november so the, the this show right. has actually been available in the states since about you know about the whole thing by mid-december or something like that but oh, it's only okay. just hit here all right um well i to be honest i you know i liked star wars when i was younger but i haven't probably seen a star wars uh film in 10 years um what right right around when natalie portman was was highlighted a lot um but i just didn't know you know when we were, you you suggested us to watch this if i would know what's going on you know because it's been such a long time and and i feel like it's kind of a club you need to know you need to know but um what uh what tell us a little bit about the mandalorian what what is this what is this series uh well i mean i can give you a cynical description and i can give you a non-cynical description no i don't uh, think you need to give a cynical description I, you... I mean you know me by now you're getting the cynical description <laughs> this is basically a way for them to make use of the fact that everybody likes boba fett without needing to worry about retconning boba fett from the original star wars films that's it they're like that's that's the cynical take the non-cynical take is it's the first live-action Star Wars series. They've had animated seasons uh, before. Uh, I forget what they're all called. I think one was Clone Wars, another one's called Rebels. So they've lived on various services over the years. They're now all... Uh, the, the ones that are canon, I think, are housed on Disney+. Plus. But this is the first live-action one. Um, and it is set just after, or a little while after, I think, uh, Return of the Jedi. Um, so it's set in between the original films uh, from the 70s and 80s and the newer ones, which just concluded with the, we didn't review it on the show, so I'll give my mini-review here, the absolutely dreadful The Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> I know some people like it, I don't. Anyway, um, it's set in between those two, and it focuses on a initially, anyway, nameless bounty hunter who is from Mandalore, hence the Mandalorian, and they're kind of like a... A warrior clan known for, you know, Judge Dread style, never taking their helmet off. Um, and basically it follows his exploits in the Star Wars universe. So there's a lot of world building going on. It's going for a slightly different tone to the films, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, the lead who you basically don't see for the entire season is Pedro Pascal, who most people would probably know from Narcos, Game of Thrones, uh, various other various other TV shows, uh, and various supporting characters. It's probably not a spoiler at this point to say that one of the characters is a... It's mostly puppetry, is the now famous Baby Yoda. Uh, mm. where the Star Wars nerds want me to point out it's not actually Yoda, but it's a, a baby of the same species as Yoda. And basically <laughs> it, it then follows 
the Mandalorian trying to protect this uh, character after he saves it from uh, being handed over to the client, played by uh, a delightfully unexpected, I think, uh, Werner Herzog. Um, but uh, that first episode sets the story in motion. Basically, it goes from there with his various misadventures across the galaxy far, far away, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the Werner Herzog thing really took me for a loop. I I was, you know, it takes me a while to get into series anyway, but then I started watching it and I think I could see myself drifting, you know, left and right, you know, looking at my computer. And then I heard his voice and I was like, what? What is this? And so, no, that was quite, quite interesting casting there. Um, and uh, Baby Yoda is, is you know, I, I like Muppets and puppets and things like that. So I just really for a lot really quite cute so um so i i actually found it um once i got into it i think i enjoyed it more than i thought i would i think it's um it's it, there's got there's some sense of humor to it i mean it's not my it's not really my kind of sense of humor but um and you know the story propels you forward and you you want to you want to you know you want to make sure that um you know in some aspects I enjoyed it. Um, it's not, it's, it's not my cup of tea. It's not something I normally would watch, but, but I, you know, for it, it's well done as a series, of course. And so, and it keeps your attention for sure. Yeah. I mean, for better or worse, and you can interpret those who have seen like the most recent Star Wars media can interpret this as they wish. Right. Um, it's one of the better things to have come out since the um the disney takeover and these star and star wars kicked off again um like for my money i think it, it's significantly better than the last film um i think it's better than that han solo um solo film which was released um i i find it interesting that it's been marketed on the whole you know Oh, it's meant to be a slightly more adult take, and originally this concept started as a series called Star Wars Underworld, and it was meant to focus on kind of like the criminal underbelly of the Star Wars universe. Now, it is doing that, but to make out that this has a more adult tone is a little bit false advertising. I mean, it's a little bit... Um, it's a little bit grimier than, you know, the, the feature films have been, but it's still very from what I can see, pretty family-friendly. You know, there's nothing any particularly explicit going on here. So anybody who's looking for a... Anybody who's looking for a TV show that is to the Star Wars universe, what Logan, the film, was to um, the X-Men universe in terms of, like, tone and different approach, I think they'll be disappointed. It also doesn't really kind of go fully into some of its premises like it's really it's really going for the whole space western thing you know and like obviously that's been cited as an influence for uh star wars since day dot in terms of you know the influence on that and you know like kurosawa's films and all this sort of thing like so it, it's all kind of like coming full circle and you can notice in the soundtrack in particular is really going for this space western feel something that actually reminded me of a little bit um it's maybe a bit of a stretch but th there are definitely overlaps is with joss whedon's series firefly which infamously got one season and then was cancelled you know i mean nearly 20 years ago now we're really going going back to when that happened it, it has some overlap with that in terms of like the the feel of the show this kind of like dusty you know outlaw dominated uh world 
I think it retreats into safe territory by the middle of the series. It's, it very much becomes a far more conventional, like, Star Wars setup there. So I, I would have liked to have seen it do more with that, I think. Um, it's enjoyable. I'd struggle to say that it's particularly essential or interesting. Um, I honestly think you could probably say that about most of the new Star Wars media. I've enjoyed it. I've consumed it. Um... And I would probably fit this in alongside that sort of sort of basis. It does. I mean, it does have its interesting um, its interesting moments, but there are bits where I feel like it was it was stretching. I would have been interested to see what I'd have made of this as a film. I think there's quite a lot of material there, and it's also got the budget for it. Um, it's quite an interesting production process. I find it's the one of the first things I've come across is using this uh, this sound stage, and then basically this like you know, overhead and fully wrapped around like real time generated scenery, so the lighting is all consistent. So a lot of the ba- mm-hmm. a lot of the locations you see there they're not physical ones at all. Um and I think that's done very well. So from a production standpoint, it's actually quite interesting. From a narrative standpoint, eh, I mean maybe not so much. Um the short review of it would be not enough Werner Herzog. I mean on honestly the the role that man has it has in this, I, I could watch him do that role all day there is not enough of him in this role um well it was great amusing that he would be even be in it and i think you were the one who told me he he didn't he had never even seen a star wars film before this so and just agreed to do it i think that's worth enough to check it out for our 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 fan base i think is a little bit more of a Werner Herzog kind of fan base than than yeah. a Star Wars one. I'm a fan of Werner Herzog on several levels. Like, I mean, for obvious directorial reasons, right? But when he pops up in these like incongruous places, um, you know, like in in acting roles, like it's just he's an absolute scene stealer. He's done it in this. Uh, he did it in Jack Reacher, right? That Tom Cruise film from a few years ago, which otherwise was completely unnotable. I enjoyed it, but like he, he's brilliant in that as well. He plays a villain. <laughs> He pops up in a random episode of uh, Parks and Recreation. Like, honestly, like just when... You, if you want to make something instantly better, just drop Werner Herzog in to, like, deliver some vaguely nihilistic lines and it will automatically make it better. Joking aside, though, I do think more of him in this show would have improved it. He is the most compelling villain presence in this mm-hmm. to me. Like, uh, later on in the series, uh, Giancarlo Esposito shows up, who most people will... Well, what, Certainly in this sort of role, most people would know as Gus Fring from Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad. And he's excellent. He does an excellent job, but he appears quite late in the season. He doesn't really get um, much to get his teeth into. And that's when my problems start to come in with it, because it's then very obviously a setup for the second season, which will be hitting Disney Plus in October 2020. They've already finished <laughs> film. You know, it's just like... It then, it, it then starts to feed back into the Disney content machine um so it's more just i think there's a lot going for this but it's more it depends whether like me you will watch something just because it's star wars i think if you're looking for something new out of star wars i think a big game has been spoken with this but i don't think it's as new as perhaps is so made out are you a big star wars fan then not really. No, yeah. I mean, like, like, for, like I'm not going to be the person on the phone going, "Well, actually, it's not baby Yoda; it's the mm-hmm. same species as Yoda, and it's Yoda <laughs> the child." Right? That that's that's not going to be me, right? But I do watch most Star. I, I watch most Star Wars stuff, like because obviously this is the this is the first Star Wars TV series I've watched. I've not bothered with. Um, rebels or clone wars or anything like that i have a good authority that some of them are half decent but i've only ever watched the films and 
I've had mixed success with them. The new ones, I like The Force Awakens. I loved The Last Jedi. I hated The Rise of Skywalker. Um, you know, so I have very mixed results with it. I'll watch it because they're spectacular. And they're kind of like, I don't know. I think just anybody with a fondness for cinema like Star Wars is one of these things where it's kind of like it's an event thing and like everybody goes to see it. And mm-hmm. in pre-coronavirus days, it was packed theaters. And it was just, it was one, it was one of these kind of like event cinema, you know? Um, and yeah. I think there's a lot to be... I think Harry Potter said for it. was like um, that as well. Yeah. yeah, you know, so I mean, I, I I enjoy consuming them from that standpoint. I'd struggle to say I'm particular. I, I wouldn't describe myself as a Star Wars fan as such, but, you know, uh, enough to be interested in Mandalorian. <laughs> well, for a long time, and um, shout out to Steve if he's watching this, I, my business partner is a massive Star Wars fan and has, I mean, his house is just filled with Star Wars paraphernalia and, and whatnot. So I definitely know, I mean, the first three films to me are, you know, like they're, they're, they're fun. They're like, you're talking about a Western, they're, they're, they're genre bending themselves a bit, you know, there's comedy, there's like, you know, romance and, and whatnot. And um, I, I, I've just felt like it's increasingly gotten out of the films to me you know over the years or at least that's and and so in in this way i think maybe the adultness is the fact that it's trying to trying to bring that back in a bit you know maybe like you know the 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 rapport with with the different characters and stuff but uh, you know again i don't i don't know enough i you know it, it it's not it it's not bad you know it's you know it's entertaining it you know it's a it's it's not like i i you know i watch succession and before that and i thought that was much better <laughs> like for a series but um you know well i mean if we're going to bring that comparison then, then yeah succession is brilliant the mandalorian <laughs> is fine like if we're going to do that yeah I, I what i would say about the mandalorian is basically i think it's good enough for somebody to give it a shot mm-hmm. i i would say if you don't like it after the first episode then i i, I it doesn't strike me as one of these shows that you you need to get into that you need to let settle and get the rhythm of it i think you're going to know pretty much off the bat whether this is for you or not to be yeah. honest yeah well yeah. there you go um but anyway on ta- on terms of um the disney plus uh streaming offer what are your thoughts jim have you got given it a little bit of look of what else is out there on disney plus if that's your thing uh, I have. I won't be continuing with it after the free trial. I mean, I, I I know there's lots of people want to watch all the Marvel films on it, and again, I've watched them. I've enjoyed like most of them, to be honest. But I don't really feel the need to be able to rewatch them at a cost of six pounds a month. If anybody has done a free trial of Disney Plus, um, for The Mandalorian or whatever, there's one film I would recommend, uh, on there just a little bit off the beaten track there, because it also has access to National Geographic stuff on Disney mm-hmm. Plus. Um, there's a film which I saw at the Edinburgh Film Festival a couple of years ago called Science Fair, uh, and it follows a group of high school kids, um, largely from across the states, but a couple from abroad as well, um, trying to make it to the International Science Fair. It's a really good little documentary, and it really highlights kind of like differences in resources across the states and like the different challenges these kids all face trying to do this, as, as well as showing their science projects, which are like unbelievably impressive. Um, so if you're looking for something a little bit off the beaten track when you're doing your Disney Plus um, free trial, I'd recommend that. Beyond that, I'm not particularly taken with it. I don't think, and there's not any features on the service itself that i think really particularly differ it from something like uh netflix or anything like that um 
if you're if you've got kids i'm sure you'll get more out of it but beyond that i'm not seeing a whole lot to be honest What's making this, um, to me, it's kind of frustrating. I mean, I know this is old news, but the fact that you have Apple coming out and you have, you know, you have Disney coming out and you have, what, Hulu. I, I don't know if Hulu's here, but it's it's just, how do you, you know, like you're going to have to sign up to all of these subscriptions in order to get anything these days. And now it's like, you know, Star Wars and Disney, which is obviously things that young children, um, you know, enjoy. Um, yeah. are going to be required to go through this this like paywall and um it, it bothers me to be honest but i mean i think disney's always done that you know they've always been been trying yeah. to control the, their media all the different subscription services it's a bit like old school american cable you know meet the new boss same as the old boss and all that but you know yeah, well, um, I, I will take a look at um, Imagineering, the documentary, just just out of curiosity. Maybe the one on Epcot, if there's there, um, you know, just to, just to have a little fun with... Um, I'll, I'll pass, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> love to hate, love to hate. Anyway, um, Disney Plus, Mandalorian, um, not too bad, is what we're saying. E o insulă în Canare. Există un limbaj fluierat. Vei veni pe insulă și vei învăța acest limbaj. Everything we speak can be whistled. Ah. If the police hear the language, they will think the birds are singing. Okay, so the first film we're reviewing is The Whistlers. Um, Mark, tell us a little bit about um, about that film. Sure. So it's a mixture of a kind of noir and a policier um, film by the, as previously mentioned, Romanian director Cornelia Poranboyu. Um, it stars Vlad Ivanov, who's a regular face in um, Romanian cinema. He plays a guy called Christy. He's a cop, but he has um, some, uh, you know, illegal connections. And we're introduced to him as he is traveling to one of the Canary Islands, um, which is famed for a language which is done solely through whistling. It's called El Silvio, I think. Um, and this is a, a means, it's been used by a, a group of the Spanish mafia. It's being used as a means to avoid detection by the police. So when people are whistling things to each other, um, there's a very uh, complicated alphabet system uh, transcription thing going on in it. And um, when when they whistle, it'll sound like birdsong uh, instead <laughs> instead of uh, just a plane. He's in the hotel room or he's in the hospital room. Go and get him. Um, it's a very... It's not, it's not a complicated narrative, but it has a lot of joins in and out of the past. There'll be a moment where just as the rhythm of the thing is telling you that we're getting to an important point. There'll be an interjection from a, um, a, a card with a new character's name and a new color, and it'll tell us some backstory, maybe go back into the past to show how they got to that point. Um, I, I can't say I fully enjoyed this movie. I have liked some of Poor and Boy's movies in the past. His first film is called uh, 1208 East of Bucharest, um, which is fantastic. Um, and the movie this is most connected to in his filmography is called Police Adjective. The case which is set up in the final in the final shot of Police Adjective is alluded to here. Um, he, the main character in that film, was also called Christie, and another character 
is in the film too, played by the same actor 10 years on. Um, so I wonder, because uh, I think there might be there might be some disagreement. I think Jim likes this film a wee bit. So please, Jim, tell me what, tell me what was up. Yeah, I, well, I mean, some of the context here that's probably needed is the fact that I have not seen any of Corneliu Poromboyu. Yeah, 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 well done. yeah. Okay. There we I'm go. There we go. Um, I haven't seen any any of his other work. Is probably some context. And as I understand, it's it, it it's quite different, right? So, mm-hmm. I I didn't really come into this with any expectations whatsoever. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that I think it's the the best film ever. I think what it does though is it has this very interesting central conceit. The whole you know the whistled language, El syllable. Um, you know, where you get you get sessions where uh, Christie is learning this, so you can communicate with his collaborators, and you get several different sessions with it, and you get a feel for that. It's it's a it's a nice unique hook for me uh, into what is otherwise, um, you know, I mean, it's quite a twisty film, but it's not mm-hmm. anything that's particularly you know revolutionary in the way it's done. It's also very keen to wink at the fact that it is a film. Uh, I mean. There's one scene in the film where, quite literally, a filmmaker interrupts proceedings because he's scouting locations <laughs> or something. You know, like, yeah. is that is that on the nose? And then you know, there's a, a set piece that takes place on a movie set. It is actually in the story a movie set, so it's very much wanting to wink at these kind of like more conventional Hollywood sort of noir crime stories, that sort of thing. I think I just enjoyed it because it, it it basically reminded me a lot of films that I like. Like one thing that actually reminded me of that I've not seen a lot of people talk about is um, Seven Psychopaths, the Martin McDonough film that came out a few years ago, which I seem to be one of the few people who like that as well. Yeah. Um. So you know, I kind of I I like that. It reminded me of stuff with multiple perspectives uh, you know which obviously probably goes back to Rashomon and things like that but you know things like Jackie Brown Pulp Fiction and these dissecting narratives I think it just hit it hit a lot of my nerd centers I think really in that respect um so I enjoyed it I'm not going to sit here and say that I think it's necessarily revolutionary I do think it was a very well executed film I think it had some unique hooks I think it's got a good sense of humor um and I enjoyed a lot to be honest but you know, I, cl- clearly, I I'm sensing opposition. Mm-hmm. I've I've read a few positive reviews of this movie, and they've all used phrases that I just fundamentally disagree with. And the phrase that often comes up is, um, "What saves the Whistlers from being simply a genre exercise?" And I'm like, "Well, there's nothing wrong with genre exercises. Like genre exercises are how we know what the language of a genre is. It's part, it's part of the reason I like it, quite frankly. Right, I think. exactly." Yeah. But I, I find um, I, I think I think the, the genre is actually being condescended to a wee bit and I think some of the plotting is a bit off for um, the way that the narrative is configured that there's always one more bit of backstory you need in order to put the puzzle together. There's one piece of plotting in the first half hour where a character mentions something, I won't say what it is, but a character mentions something and you go, all right, so that's where the money's hidden. And it is. And you're like, oh, come on. Like, you're meant to keep a, a certain suspension of, um, a sus- like, a suspension of the conclusions. There's meant to be, like, a progression here, and you've just upended it slightly. Um, it is playful. It is a playful film, but not as playful or as serious as um, the previous ones. And um, before this, Jim mentioned that maybe I wouldn't like this because 
um, some of other I've seen other Pornboyu films and I've liked them more and that is right in a way because um, he's a very philosophical filmmaker his interests are in um, a mixture of epistemology the philosophy of language um, the philosophy of history too and here the the problem of verification and the problem of the language of philosophy is here too because of the whistling language obviously but it's yeah. couched within a narrative which in which everyone is under surveillance all the time and that completely flattens the drama of conscience which was such an important part of police adjective and is why i enjoyed it so much here everyone's just out for their own back and everyone's just kind of spineless and put into positions they have no control over and that is maybe why I feel the narrative has some very lazy beats. Amanda, what did you make of it? Wow, I mean, I didn't get any of that out of the film, to be honest. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I just, I, I, I don't really, I, I do see, I did see that being a genre exercise, and that's what I got out of it. And I thought it looked pretty, and it was interesting in terms of, you know, you know, the look and feel of of it. But um, I, it, 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 it really didn't draw me in in terms of the story and the narrative and and I and I wasn't I wasn't really that captivated by it and I also you know I think what's interesting about some of these genre exercises that we're talking about um, at least there's a little bit of bending it just felt a little bit like an homage and I'd rather watch like a Jean-Pierre Melville film than than watch this you know mm-hmm. and so it, it wasn't it wasn't really worth my time um, and unlike I think I, mean, I don't have much more to say other than you know, last we last last time we did this, we you know, um, the film Emma really changed my perspective on um, you know a director I didn't like some of his previous work, and I saw um, his this this gentleman's documentary, um, Infinite Football at Berlinale a couple a couple of years ago, and while I really liked the character and I liked the premise of it, obviously I picked to go to to the film. I thought the film was just terrible and very bizarre and and um i also found the the guy um more interesting than the way that the filmmaker um directed it and then at God, the end po- of it he... porum boy is getting a right kick in here we can't pronounce his name we hate his films honestly <laughs> I, well i, I also like... don't like him as a person because he got up on a q a and he was just he was so somebody asked him there was this russian animation at the end of his film i'm sorry this is a review of his last film but there was a russian animation at the end of his film and it was like people there was a q a and somebody asked him asked him in the q a why did you put that in there like what does it have to do with you know romanian football or something like that and he was like don't you know and so maybe it was some sort of philosophical thing that i just didn't get and and maybe that's why i don't understand him I mean, the one, the one thing I will say against the film, right, you know, because as tends to happen in these discussions, right, because I'm the one who likes the film, then automatically, like, you know, I'd, I'd probably end up pushing back harder in, in, in opposition. The only thing I will say is I do think the actual story, if you look at it, because it's chopped up and it's all over the place. Like, basically, you get, like, um, chapters according to what... Um, supporting characters basically getting the focus or you're finding out their role in the in the story... What I will say is I'm not sure how much that really adds to it, if I'm being honest. Um, You know, other stories I've spoken about in the films that I've compared it to, I think it added to the way that story was told. In the case of this one, I'm not... I'm not 100% sure it really does it, it really does that. Um, If you enjoy that kind of mode of storytelling, as I do, I think you'll be okay with it, but I don't think it's a story that is particularly 
added to or subtracted from by doing that. It's really kind of the more unique aspect of it and the fact that it's willing to wink at itself that I engaged with, I think. Um, so I don't think it's a perfect film by any means. I think I think what's clear is I enjoyed it a lot more than the two of you did. Well, I, I think we you've taken criticism, though, sometimes of films that are all about the filmmaking, you know, films about films. Like, you really don't like the artist, if I can, if I remember. <laughs> but why is this one particularly Why are we bringing the better? artist up again? <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, I take it, but that's when it's. I mean, the case, but I mean, and, and I'm genuinely not going to go on about the artist here because this would be the <laughs> third time on the show or something. It's more that for me, that's more when it's using it as a gimmick. Now here, I don't, I, I don't think it's being used as a gimmick, right? The hook of the film is not it's non-linear, it's choppy, blah blah. I think that's a storytelling choice, which has not ended up necessarily adding that much. But that's not the gimmick of the film. The closest the film has to a gimmick is the whole whistling language thing. I actually think that's quite, you know, it's quite an interesting, unique thing oh, to bring to this sort of that, story. That's one of the funniest things in the film is when he um, when they test it out for the first time or in the hour mark, um, and he, he's on the top of a promontory whistling, and the um, language is translated in the subtitles, and you go, oh, this is great, because it's as though the voice is coming from nowhere. Um, I kind of agree about the... Um, the use of movies because there's a scene where uh, the prosecutor and Christie end up in a um, cinema together and they're watching The Searchers at a particular moment, which kind of feeds back into the into the narrative. Um, so, and also there is a very pronounced psycho moment, which I won't go into. Um, but these aren't just winking at the film; these kind of say something about his um, not only his mode of making them, but also about that narrative too, because that narrative is uh, the jumping in and out of certain time frames the flashbacks and what and, uh, and so forth um those are that's the substance of film noir and if it's a bit confusing there's the famous story about uh, robert mitchum on the set of uh, out of the past where he would go around the set saying uh, don't tell anyone guys but i think a couple of pages in the script are missing and that kind of element of not being able to solve everything is part of the part of the pleasure of watching a film noir i think great and i love i i have seen a lot of film noirs i think i will choose other ones over this seeing this one again but jim you did see it twice you said because you 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 saw it twice uh, yeah but that's more to do with my lack of lockdown focus than <laughs> it is it's, it's not it, that's not a comment on my on the uh the film it's more of a comment on my viewing habits yeah right and now, to, to, be to, honest. to um his credit, I perhaps have a little bit loss of focus as well, and just didn't captivate me very much, to be honest. So, you know, you'll be you'll be happy to know, Amanda, that uh, Infinite Football is being released in the next month to coincide. I know. With this. I, I think on movie or something. I'm really excited to see it again, especially <laughs> the last ten minutes. <laughs> so, um, make sure that you check this film out if you like noir and. Um, you know, Canary Islands, and I actually really liked the titles too. I thought that was that was, those were quite lovely. Um, or you know, yeah. I, give it a whirl. I think this film had me on site because it it does open with Iggy Pop's The Passenger. I think yeah, it basically well, had, I, it, it had me from there, quite frankly. I think it, it it knew it knew its audience in my case. I think. Yeah, I like the soundtrack. I like the look. I like the feel. I I like a a noir, a neo noir, if you will. But um, yeah, you know, it's it's it's. It's not my favorite. 
So the Whistlers has gotten two out of the three votes here, and um, it's actually going to be out May later this week, May 8th, um, and on Curzon Home Cinema, so be sure to check it out. I'm told I was a violent child. I can hurt people. Most people know to stay on the right side of the Devers family. I'm what you meet if you ever find yourself on the wrong side. People say they're trouble, the Devers. I didn't get the joke, Lex. But I say all families have their problems. I don't want him to be around you because of the things that you do. Wise up, Arm. Wise up. Yeah, wise up. You were never like this before, you know that? Before them Devers got their hands in you. We heard about this fella. But we think it's time to finish the job. So the next film we're going to be reviewing is Calm With Horses. Is that correct? Calm With Horses. Nick Rowland. Um, who wants to, to tell us a little bit about that? Mark? Sure, I'll jump in. Um, so this is a film um, which follows um, a man whose nickname is Arm. His real name is Douglas and he's played by an actor called Cosmo Jarvis. Um, set in a small town in Ireland and um, he is sort of like the, the strong man for... A, uh, a notorious family called the Devers, and he's sort of kept on a short leash by the um, one of the up and coming members whose name is Dibna, who's played by Barry Keon. Um, he's trying to find some money because his um, the mother of his child is trying to move their child. Um, her name is Ursula, she's played by Neve Algar, and um, the son is called Jack. He has autism, I think he's five years old, and they're trying to get money to move him to a, um, a school in Cork, which would be better suited for his needs. Um, the way that Arm is treated by the people around him is a mixture of like intellectual and emotional belitt belittlement, um, and he's kept under, under control essentially by them um, until there's a, an incident within the family that needs to be sorted, and the the head honcho asks that Arm essentially carry out a hit as quietly as possible. Um, this may or may not go to plan, and what follows is then a story of retribution. So, I I'm the other person who's seen this film here. Um, I I really like this. I it's another one where I'm not. I'm not convinced the story is necessarily, you know, original or groundbreaking. I think you've seen this um, this type of tale quite a lot before, in particular with the, even with a character who, as um, Arm, is the the central character, a boxer or a former boxer. Um, you know, there's there's plenty of cinematic parallels that you can come up with there. But I have to say, I think for a what I believe is a first feature film, actually, in the case of Nick Rowland. Um, it's really quite accomplished. I was really taken with the look of this film uh, and a lot of the shot choices that he makes. In particular, right at the start of the film, we open on a an act of violence from Arm, which, uh, as Mark mentioned, sets the whole plot in motion. And just the way in which that is framed compared to when Arm is having more introspective moments, you know, th th there's a very intelligent use, in my opinion, of 
uh, close-up and medium shots versus wide-angle shots when Arm is going about his um, business for the the Dever. Is it Devers or Dever family? Devers, I think. Okay, so it's the Devers, is not the you know plurals of tricky surnames. Um, I think the the central acting performances are really good. Uh, Cosmo Jarvis, I think, is excellent as Arm in that central role, and I think it largely depends on him. But I really do think it's some accomplished direction here, and then something that I, I said recently, just after seeing it, was I don't know really know what I was expecting going into this film, but there are a lot of intelligent choices and well-executed ones as well. In particular, there's a car chase scene, which, in all honesty, is the best car chase I've seen in ages. Um, It stands to reason, because apparently I found out that Nick Rowland apparently used to be a professional rally driver, so it makes a lot more sense after after finding that out. Um, but overall, I'm 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 really very impressed with it. I think it I think it looks excellent. I think it's well constructed. Um, as I say, I don't think it's a revolutionary story by any means, but it's just it's one of these things where I just think it's good storytelling. I think it's a well a well executed film. You are going to need to give yourself a couple of minutes to get into the Irish accents in this film, though, because my God, are they thick! They, there are some absolutely incredible Irish accents going on in this film. I think once you've adjusted to that, then. As far as I'm concerned, you're all set. Um, I agree that the performances are great, and it's it's as a study of the actors, especially the young actors. Although I think there are a couple of um, quite hammy um, higher up performances. The the uncle uh, Paddy, the, the head, is, the, the head of the Deverses. Oh my God, that's a that's a that's a task to get through. Um, but the younger performances are all, I think, very accomplished. Cosmo Jarvis. Um, has a bit of has a bit of brando to him and the way that he's like constantly trying to emote but struggling um he has this fantastic when he's being told off or being told to do something he has this fantastic scrunched up face that he does um where you can tell that there's intense concentration going on um i he's think he's also got that impressive uh like his his neck is as thick as the back of his head as well <laughs> he really sells the it's... boxer look with that as well i think it's, true. it's it's the way the film frames his physique it too because he's so shy and quiet but when he's um when he's needed so decisive in action that is a good contrast with the Barry Keown performance, which is more jumpy, more um, more in your face, more confrontational. Um, but the, I think the best performance here is by Neve Algar, and that's unfortunate because her part is, I think, a kind of rote and pat one. I think the the destination of where she ends up is I got kind of annoyed with this because, and it, maybe it's because I'm thinking in in terms of um, where I first saw Neve Algar, which was in. Uh, Shane Meadows' The Virtues, the series last year, which he's so good in, and she has, um, she's such an interesting role in that film as a, someone uh, that series as a someone who's basically just about uncontainable. Here, although her gestures are really interesting, although her line readings are fantastic, and although the chemistry that she has with Cosmo Jarvis as a scene partner is is so obviously well developed, um, I found the role as written to be a massive disappointment in a film that had lots of other points of interest, but just decided that, you know, not to develop her role to the same extent. There's also uh, the usual thing about the the gangster family knows, they always know, and there's a, there's a test towards the latter part of the film, which just strikes me as like, not a very interesting narrative manoeuvre to start with, and I disagree about the direction too, because I think a number of those scenes have really 
although they go for emotion or they go for a genre beat, they don't hit them, I think, with any accuracy. Okay, see, I'd differ with that. I think, because I think, I don't know, for my, for my money, the beats it's trying to hit, they're not particularly... And and this this will sound like I'm damning with faint faint praise a little bit, and I'm not. I they're not necessarily particularly complex, but I do mm. think they're executed quite well for my money. I don't think this is like because there's a lot of angles to this film. Um, it could have gone down. It doesn't like because because there is a similarity between uh the arm character, so you know the main one, Cosmo Jarvis, and his uh, son. There is some similarities there in terms of there's this illusion that they've maybe suffered from the same difficulties and the son is part of the story is as you said they're trying to relocate him and, and care for him and it kind of shows arms inability to deal with that he's, you know he's willing but you know the skills and the understanding are just not there they could have gone into that more and the the title basically seems to come from like one key scene where that happens but it doesn't really linger on it now it could have gone a slightly more abstract route with that it doesn't it goes a slightly more obvious uh crime drama led beat uh, i think it wears a lot of its metaphors on its sleeve as well there's a lot of you know dog on a leash metaphors kicking around this uh in particular one very very overt one before that car chase scene i mentioned so it's not necessarily... I, I, I'm not going to sit in here and say that I think it's necessarily the most nuanced film. I do disagree with the execution, though. I think it executes them quite well. It's just... I don't think there's necessarily huge amounts of depth below some of the better-looking scenes, some of the key scenes that are needed to hit the plot beats. So, I, I, w I, I am going to disagree there, but I, I think I see where you're, you're coming from. There's that scene you just mentioned, which obviously where the title comes from about the um the horse trainer and uh jack's son is on horseback being led around by um ursula's um new boyfriend new partner prospective partner um the shot selection in that sequence struck me as going for a certain kind of um emotional note and just missing completely because there are a number of films, I'm thinking of uh, Chloe Zhao's The Rider and uh, Valeska Griesbach's The West, uh, Western, which use uh, the metaphor of a horse for this uh, interrogation of masculinity. This gestures at the same and misses, I think. You see, because I, I think that something that I'll, I'll draw an analogy with, which seems like maybe an odd one to draw an analogy with, is um film that came out i think it was maybe a couple of years ago now it was actually quite a long time ago uh it did very well at the edinburgh film festival it was a film called caliber right now i don't know what if either of you seen it or what you thought of that film in, in some ways it feels similar to that to me now that film had a lot of aspects that i thought were well executed i thought it looked excellent at points there are beats in there which are trying to hit emotional ones or plot ones where i don't think they're complex i don't think they're necessarily if you're going to if you wanted to sound unne un unnecessarily harsh, you'd say they're not necessarily that interesting. But I do think they're well executed. It, in some ways, it reminded me of of that. Um, in terms of whether it hits the plot beats for you or the the emotional beats, probably more importantly. Clearly, your mileage may vary based upon me and Mark in this conversation. Mm. What I would say is, if you like well-told stories with emotional investment is definitely worth checking out. And I think the acting performances are great. The one, one thing I do agree wholeheartedly with Mark about is 
Neve Algar's performance is excellent, and I think it's I, that's the only downside, overt downside of the film for me. I think it is one of these roles where an actress, and I'm going to ch- use that word deliberately uh, right now, has been given a role uh, and has made a lot more out of it than what I suspect is on paper. Yeah. Um, she's brought a lot more depth to that and a lot more empathy to that role than I think there is. Now, in terms of the way the story goes, I think it maybe calls for that sort of role, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there couldn't have been more uh, depth there. Fortunately, in the case of this film, Neve Algar manages to bring it. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And there's a scene where they go to a uh, small diner, small cafe, bistro, whatever, and they order burgers. And there's there's this tiny moment, but it speaks so clearly to the life that they do and don't share, and maybe they want to share it, is that um, he reaches over to her plate immediately, Arm reaches over to Ursula's plate, and he takes her gherkins away from her burger and puts them into his. And it's a lovely moment, because you know that they've that, that that's a routine that they've been through so many times, and that's that's just um, of the thing I mentioned earlier, of good scene work. Great. And when is that film coming out on online, then? Oh, I think it's already it- out. Yeah, it's, oh, it's, it's already, already available. Um, so I know you can get it various places. I know for certain. I think it's on BFI Player, but it uh, oh, okay. it, it it actually it got caught in the lockdown. Basically, it got a very, very short cinema run before the 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 cinema shut. So it had another digital release um just a short while ago. So you should be able to find it on most platforms. But I know BFI Player for certain has it. Okay, great. Calm with horses. I didn't see you at school today. I went to the doctor. What's wrong? Girl problems. Don't you ever just wish you were a dude? All the time. This is the most magical sound you will ever hear. Down beneath the ashes and stones. I'm just not ready to be a mom. Where else could you go? Nowhere in Pennsylvania. I think you should try another place. Downtown You going to New York? What are you doing there? Seeing family and stuff. Used to be on street. Who came with you today? My cousin. Do you have a place to stay tonight? I know you came from far away. I'll figure it out. Okay, so the next film that we're going to be reviewing is Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, directed by Eliza Hitman. Um, Jim, tell us a little bit about the film. So the film uh, centers on uh, two young girls, basically, who live in rural... um, Well, it's not too rural, but it's Pennsylvania. And basically, um, Autumn, played by Sydney Flanagan, finds herself pregnant. Um, after some some build up to basically confirming this, and needs to pursue a abortion, uh, which is not offered to her in her hometown, uh, and you get some scenes basically showing the slightly lacking provisions uh, that are offered instead. So instead, she takes off with her cousin uh, Skylar, played by Talia Ryder, to New York City. Uh, in order to make use of the facilities across state lines, um, so it it basically it's um, it follows them throughout that journey, really, uh, from basically trying to do this under the radar without the awareness of um, their parents and 
the difficulties they encounter even when they get there and basically all the hoops that they have to jump through and the difficulties that they face uh mainly from men uh, is also a, a key part of this it's kind of like the 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 role or the the lack thereof of men in this particular uh scenario and it focuses on the two of them the whole time, couple of supporting characters, but that's what it does. It focuses on their journey from Pennsylvania crossing state lines in order to uh, try and get an abortion for this unwanted pregnancy. And um, Mark, what did you think? Yeah, I I thought this was extremely well observed and extremely well acted. Um, and the only other film with Hitman's I've seen is her previous one, Beach Rats, um, which is about a, a guy who presents us straight to his sort of typical Brooklynite bro friends, but is uh, on the sly frequenting uh, male sex cam services. And he keeps on saying a lines, uh, along the lines of, um, I don't know what I want. And there's a similar line in this film where someone says, I don't know what I want to do right now. And both of these films seem to be about people going through a formative or identity formative um, experience involving sex to some degree and involving a taboo or a societal restriction around sex and I'll say that Hitman's style which is partly because she's working with one of the great cinematographers of the moment her name's Helen Navarre she shot um, Happy's Lazaro and a, few, a number of other films um, the way in which she calmly ob- ob- observes every part of the process every step of getting not only to New York, but then within these different offices, and then there are these um, sort of, it's always another obstacle to follow, and the way that she documents this is so clear and sympathetic. Um, And it seems to me that Hitman's films are, or at least the two that I've seen in this one, they're, or she's a director who communicates very clearly about people who don't communicate clearly themselves. Um, there's the style of acting here and Cindy Flanagan's absolutely fantastic there's uh, a central scene uh, from which the title is drawn which is absolutely heart melting, it's extraordinary stuff Um, what she does is she's so constantly uh, on the verge of tears you can see the lip is just about to go, there's a little frown just just above her her eyebrows Um, and this sort of, I, I feel like I want to call this performance style recessive and it connects to a, a really a brilliant essay written by uh, Shawnee Enelow in the unfortunately soon to be shuttered uh, film comment called The Great Recession um, and it's about the emergence of a certain style of pared down internalized acting and I think this could really be seen as like a, a not only a textbook example of that but extremely sophisticated um, development of it too. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I think um, the what what isn't said and what is what is what's in the eyes of of these, particularly these two girls on this journey, and it could it could very much be as, you know, like, oh, I'm spending two days in the city, and you know, and 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 I loved every element of their journey and and where they were going, especially because I lived in New York, so I actually know where that arcade is. I think, um, and it's one of my favorites. But um, it you know, but knowing through that the way that they're acting is so well done knowing that this main story is 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 so harrowing and so mm-hmm. so sad that she's having to go through this um it was it incredibly blew me away i was um moments i was sad and you know and and horrified but also moments where i was just loving spending this time with them so i i i was 
so happy to 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 see this film and i'm i highly highly recommend it yeah i i i would agree with both of you um i think this is an absolutely superb film um it it just captures so many little things very well and Mm. it'd be very easy for a film dealing with this sort of topic to be impassioned you know in the sense that you know a lot of very overt out there emotions and it does that far more in my opinion far more powerful thing of they are there you can feel them but it's all in what is not said um it's not to do with you know great angry speeches or um you know emotional breakdowns it's all about trying to hold it together really um despite the fact that it's rather than it being kind of like this seismic moment in the main character's life and you know there's this huge drama that swirls around it it's more this kind of like emotional death by a thousand cuts almost you know it's just like these all these little difficulties they need to face and absorb and just try and keep going um despite the fact that this entire system seems to be against them and that is that resides in the the two central acting performances but also the direction as well i think one thing on a slightly more flippant note one thing it does capture beautifully is the fact that a lot of these public transport terminals in new york are like purgatory i mean honestly like it just looks like absolute hell on earth i I know that like my my only real experience of one of them is penn station which is honest to god it's like the it's just this fluorescent lit hellhole um, and I think and I don't know where it is in the film. I think it's like it's maybe like the bus terminal, like the port authority. Yeah, they're in or something. port authority, yeah. Yeah, right. And basically, it looks very similar in that regard. So it it does it does get that across like really very well. And it's just all these little things add up. You know what is not said, the facial expression here, the fact that where they are just looks just the most unaccommodating, uninviting place in the entire um, earth. It all adds to it, and that look that spills over into the the clinic offices that um autumn finds herself in um it's just all these elements come together to just tell what is a very simple story very well it's it, it's an, it's something we, we've i've said about a, like a couple of films on the show and even to even today i'll say it about another one but this one or certainly the ones we're talking about today this is the best visual storytelling in my view mm-hmm. is that the situations that the characters are put in the way the story develops and then the acting, it just all comes together to be absolutely spot on in my view. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And there's something too about when they arrive in New York and they go to the subway for the first time, there's that feeling which has been done in a million movies, but it's very particularly articulated here. Um, it's about the whiz and the rush of New York and it being such a contrast with the more sedate rhythms of um, Pennsylvania, where she's from. But then you need to connect that to the way in which there's just this pervasive air of enmity and sexism just everywhere she goes. And it's on the tube as it's, well, it's in Pennsylvania, it's in her work. There's a horrible moment cashing up, which is unspeakable. Um, just to think that that's an everyday thing is appalling. Um, but then there's a moment on the on the subway, which is even worse, if you can compare them. Um, and what you said, Jim, too, about uh, the storytelling being 
just the best storytelling that, that we're going to see in the films reviewed in the show today um, is so true because th those moments where she's in the clinic and maybe it's an ultrasound she's going for, maybe it's a like, maybe it's the first step of the abortion. There's a moment where she looks at the monitor and she can see the, um, she can see the image of a baby as it's growing. Um, there's a moment where Levar's camera just moves from right of the screen to the left as she rolls her eyes away from the the screen and it's like ah okay she's made her mind up like that's that's it and a similar yeah, moment where she's, I'm pleased sorry. I'm pleased you mentioned that because it, it, there, there's another there's another shot that's kind of like a little bit similar to the way sky. That, yeah and it's yeah. just like it, it's it, it's like we said it's just it's little things but it's just it's again it's allowing the visuals to tell the story and i think it, I, th I, re I really think the film does it superbly and I th i'm yeah. glad you mentioned that because that's one of the key examples that actually stuck in my head and that thing about like the, the camera being the sympathetic observer when everyone else is uh everyone else belittles her or just takes advantage of her exactly i mean i might i agree like the whole um like you were talking about the subway scene i just I, even when she went up to the guy, the subway guy, yeah. like, that was going to tell her, I, I was like, oh, don't do that because <laughs> he's not going to give you any information. And the way I just trying to figure out how to get in and, and stuff. I mean, it, it, in, in some aspects, it's like, like a travelogue. This is, you know, it's just New York is a scary place. And even my friend and I we were talking two nights ago about those things that happen on the subway that, you know, you 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 you, you can't imagine they do, but they do. And but um. But it it it's it's the details and how that she's telling the story that is 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 really really special. So um, when when is when is this film out then, Jim? Do you know? Uh, it is out on May thirteenth, I believe. Okay, so May thirteenth, never rarely, sometimes always. Um, we all highly recommend the film. Absolutely. <laughs> John Watsky from the Ocala Drive-In in Ocala, Florida. Incidentally, only an hour or so from where I grew up. And at, for a time being, it was the only cinema in the U.S. to be showing new releases during this current COVID-19 crisis and accounted for the entirety of the box office sales for the U.S. one week. Is that the truth? So you were the only box office uh, we, were, we were the only ones reporting uh, box office reports for uh, actually almost three weeks because we were the only ones getting new releases. There was a few other drive-ins around the country that were open, but they were doing classic films and, uh, you know, retro-type films. So I had contacted the couple of these smaller independent film companies since large ones have pulled their releases temporarily. And uh, on one of my screens, I was showing some of the older, I, was, I mean, the new movies and then the other screen, I was showing the older ones. I saw that you were actually showing the um, true history of the Kelly gang, which was actually playing at the Glasgow Film Festival. So is that one of the uh, ones you're talking about, one of the new ones that you can show? Right, right. We, we we had Swallow, we had Resistance, now we, uh, then the true history of the uh, Kelly Gang, and now I have Wretched. Uh, all of them are IFC films, and uh, so, but they're all all new. So tell me a little bit about the history of uh, the Ocala Drive-In Theater. How long has it been around, and how long have you been running it? It actually opened in March of 1948. And it closed somewhere around 2002 and was sitting here vacant for many a year. And in uh, 2010, I found it and we 
restored it and opened July the 29th of 2011. Well, how about you? You said you've been in the business for a long time. Yeah. Pretty much grew up in the business. My grandfather started as a projectionist in 1913. My dad was a projectionist. My brother and I were projectionists. Our sons were projectionists. And uh, we were actually in the process of teaching my grandson when uh, 35 millimeter film went out and digital came in. Does the Ocala drive-in obviously has digital, um, but what was that like how you started it? Was started with digital or? Uh, no, actually, actually the first uh, three years we were open, I was running with the original 1948 Franken projector that was in here when it was built. And, uh, you know, when, uh, Digital come in uh, at the end of uh, 2013, November 2013, we switched it over to digital on one screen. And then two years later, I built the other screen and put another one back there. Yeah, the remodel was extensive because uh, the place had been vacant for so many years. It had grown up in weeds and little trees and uh, the roof had a lot of damage on the concession and all the drywall had caved in. And it was vandalized naturally being vacant that long. but uh, you know, then the, to switch over to digital, it wasn't as uh, much of a uh, task other than uh, it's a $96,000 projector, which is, you know, takes a lot to uh, pay for that, you know. But um, the uh, conversion for that, that was a one-day thing to go from film to, to digital. We run on film on a Sunday night and Monday the uh, Technician came in, installed the digital, and we opened that night with, with digital. Around this time last year, I tried to uh, run an outdoor cinema here in Scotland. And if you know anything about Scotland, the weather is a bit funny. You know, it rains a lot. So how does weather affect? I mean, I know Florida has great weather, but in terms of when you can start a film or end a film, or does it affect your screenings? It, it doesn't affect the quality of the picture on the screen, uh, actually at all. It does affect the, the customers coming because naturally they have to run the windshield wipers on the vehicle. Uh, that's, that affects the, the business tremendously. They'll come out in the heat, they'll come out in the Florida cold, if you can call it that, but they, uh, they don't come out much when it's raining. Tell me a little bit about your audience. I read something even before the, this crisis that you've really been growing a, a, a large audience of people who traveled for that drive-in experience. And now, how has that maybe audience changed a bit? Well, actually, the audience pretty much stayed the same other than we, we're drawing people from a longer distance. Uh, my average uh, customer base is uh, couples from their early 20s to late 30s that have two or three children that uh, they cannot afford to take them into a walk-in theater for, because of the expensive price or wouldn't dare try to take the little toddlers into a walk-in theater. And uh, we have people, we've always had people that drove from Daytona, St. Augustine, uh, uh, as far up as uh, Tallahassee on a pretty regular basis, but now they're coming from all over. I mean, we actually had some last weekend, several people were here from Atlanta, Georgia. That's a seven hour ride. They took a road trip. That's how that's how bad people want to get out of the house right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, exactly. I, I, I know the feeling. So how has your audiences in terms of numbers? Have you like, did you do it like just on the weekend or was it a seven days a week anyway? Oh, how, no. How's it grown? 
we have always operated seven days a week. We close for nothing. I mean, we're open 365 days a year. No cliche, the show goes on. It's not a cliche, it's a way of life. So it goes on. But uh, right now for this time of the year, we're, we're doing uh, better than we normally would do at this time of the year. Because normally they're doing their proms, their, their graduation, their, uh, you know, a lot of expenses and, uh, you know, final exams and stuff. So uh, that usually slows things down about this time of the year for a few weeks but right now we're pretty much filling up on weekdays and on uh, friday and saturday we're selling out and having to turn people away but i am at half capacity right now because i've taken every other parking space and fenced it off with social distance yeah 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 absolutely and how has that changed the way that you can run to, do you need to prepare more or is there more cost into your screen it, 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 yes it is a lot more cost, cost to it because right now like i said we we're losing every other parking space. Then uh, for the uh, concession, we have a walk-up window, which has got a little fenced-in walkway going to 72 feet long. Every six feet is marked off for the uh, social distance with a little a dim light, but at night, you have to be able to see where it's at. And then we also deliver to the vehicle. Uh, as opposed to before, they would come into the concession and get their food. And basically we would, most of it we would hand out to them on just a paper plate. Now it's all to-go containers and everything's covered or wrapped good. And uh, so we, we, we've got a lot of extra costs there. Plus it used to be where most of my customers paid cash. Now they're all paying with debit card because they're ordering online. And so I, I'm absorbing that extra cost there. So we're, we're doing more business, but the, the operating expense is a lot more than it, it was at, before. But uh, Everything we're doing right now is making certain that uh, the guests are safe and my, my staff is safe. Uh, for instance, my staff, everybody wears uh, gloves and masks. Okay, they have their temperature taken when they come to work before they, they clock in, their temperature is taken, it's logged, and three hours later it's done again. Uh, the people that are delivering the food to the vehicle are told to, to, to Staff inside puts it on the on the tray. The, the runners are told to take it directly to the vehicle. Do not touch the packages. Hold their arm out at full length and let the customer reach out the their vehicle and take their own packages off. So there's no cross contamination. They return to the concession. They take the, those gloves off, put another pair of gloves on, and then take another tray back out. So we, we're going to every extreme that we can to make certain that everybody is, is safe at this time. Like I told you, my grandfather started it back in the family 107 years ago, but uh, in the 60s, my dad worked for a company out of Louisiana that owned 297 drop-ins at that time. They were, you know, they owned almost as many as there is in the country today. And he was a projectionist and engineer for them, and they had all of them in Louisiana, Mississippi, southern Alabama, and the Florida Panhandle. And I used to go from driving to driving with him when he did repairs or installation and stuff like that. And uh, I just always liked to drop it and always said I would open my own drop in and everybody just kind of thought I was crazy, but um, I guess I am, but I'm doing it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you have. And, and today, how many drive-ins? I mean, because I think I read something like there were 5,000 or more. Uh, yeah, at one point there was over 6,400. Uh, it's down to 305 now. Wow. And uh, the biggest problem with the drive-ins is people over the years, uh, you know, back in the heyday of it, 
got to the point where they were bringing their own food and beverages and even to their popcorn with them to the drive in. Well, you don't make anything off the tickets. You make about 20% of the ticket sales. Uh, that doesn't cover any of the operating expense. So by people bringing their own food, that you know put, put the drive-ins into a financial bond. And uh, they started going to the uh, lower budget movies to try to get a little bit more percentage, which naturally just cut, cut their attendance down and they finally worked their way out. But uh, you know people need to realize that it is the uh, concession that supports any theater, but mainly the drive-ins because we, we pay two film companies a percentage of, of every ticket sold as opposed to one and our, our ticket prices are much lower so you know that that was a big hurdle that i've had here trying to uh i call it educating the customers some people say i i pound it in the head a little bit too much but you always got new customers that have to understand why we need that concession sale you know yeah what do you think makes a drive-in experience well the, the, the drive-in is more like a social gap even now with uh, everybody's you know keeping a social distance uh, we have 12 to 16 feet in between the vehicles right now. People are still sitting outside the vehicle on their lawn chairs. The, the children are still running around, you know, enjoying themselves. Uh, you know, before the, the virus epidemic come in, they, they were getting in the big field underneath the screen and they'd throw Frisbees and play ball and with kids that didn't know, they, they interact. Um, you talk to people, you know, my, my generation, uh, about an older movie, say in the, in the 60s, if they seen it at a walk-in theater, they will tell you, oh yeah, I seen that, it was a good movie. And that's pretty much the end of the conversation. If they seen it at a drive-in, it's a memory. They will tell you what drive-in they seen it at, who was with them, what type of vehicle they were, were driving. It's it's a memory. You know, the whole family's together. They, they you know, they're spending five hours or so at the theater. Uh, they're not cramping around people. If the children get tired, they lay in the back of the vehicle and go to sleep. And uh, they can even bring their dog. So everybody's happy. So you mentioned a lot of your audience's families and children. It's a, because it's affordable to bring a whole family together in their car. What kind of shows? I mean, I noticed you're having a whole Harry Potter week, which is really exciting. What, what kind of films do you tend to program that are quite popular? Uh, Basically, I try to uh, get any of the uh, movies that the children like, especially animated. Animated movies seem to go very well here. I always do the animated movies when they come out, whichever one it is, and then I'll do something uh, for the second feature that's more entertaining to the adults, but it's still appropriate for the children to watch if they decide to stay up. I have a game room, too, so that a lot of times they'll just give the children some change and let them go into the game room, play games, get them out of the way so they can watch, enjoy their movie. But, uh, you know, I always go to the, the family-oriented movies and especially kids' movies. And has your experience with uh, distribution companies, like you said, you I'm, I guess there's less available right now, but has that changed now during this process, you know? Oh, uh, yeah, it definitely changed because all of your major film companies, Universal, Disney, Sony, all of them pulled their releases that they had scheduled for uh, April, May, June. They've already pulled them and are either going to reschedule later down the line. Some of them have already released on pay-per-view or DVD. Uh, so it's making it hard to, to get family-appropriate movies because most of your independent film companies uh, 
tend to go to the lower budget and the horror type movies or stuff like that. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's getting really hard. That's why I went with the Harry Potter this week. And uh, I'm hoping that uh, as more of the drive-ins open around the country, uh, that the film companies will at least start releasing something family appropriate uh, that we can take in, you know, you know, until they start opening all the other theaters. Yeah, absolutely. What what would you like for your business, for drive-in movie theaters all over the U.S. or whatnot? Well, it, it, you know, it has definitely uh, brought a lot of exposure to, to my location here, but uh, also drive-ins in, in general, I think. It has brought a lot of exposure to it. And I think over this period, people are going to realize how much safer they are at a drive-in, uh, you know, a at walk-in theater, you're pretty much confined. So no matter what the catastrophe, you're you you kind of locked in a spot there, and you you know up against people. The drive-in is kind of you have more freedom. You know, it's like it's it's a big tailgate party, okay? And you do have more freedom where you can move around, and if there was a problem, you could get get out of the way or whatever. But um, you know, I think in in general, people are gonna realize you know that. They're different experience. It's a totally different experience, is what it is. You know, you have a you have a walk-in theater where you go in and it's a movie. You have a drive-in that you go in, you enjoy the movies, some company, and it's a memory. You know, the drive-in theater is a memory. It's not just a movie. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. And I know that when I can get back to Florida, I'm gonna take my mom and come visit. And watch yeah, it definitely. Yeah, y'all need to come down and see us. All right, wonderful. Thank go and introduce yourself when you get here. Okay, will do. Okay, so we've come to this part of the podcast that we um, pick our favorite short films, and um, Jim kind of has it that we have to do it in a minute. That's the big challenge. Um, so um, I'm going to go first, if that's I think okay. You'll find it, I think you, Carice, who founded this segment, dictated the minute thing. Let's not. Oh, I, right, I am well. not that dictator, dictatorial. Apart from the fact that we will absolutely stick to it. It's just, <laughs> it's just because I guess you had the clock in your hands, and now, now we, now we can all see you timing us. So um, I will BDR go first. Um, in, and I doubt that mine's going to be any longer than a minute, um, because the film I'm recommending is only three minutes long, um, and it's called Chat Couton, La Musique. It's also by one of my favorite, um, film directors of all time, Chris Marker, um, and, um, I'll let you guys watch it, really. I mean, I think it's called Cat Listens to Music, and it's, it's, it's that simple, really, um, and it's, I don't know, when I'm, when I'm having a bad day... It kind of just pleases me to listen to to watch a cat listening to music and, and from from the nineties. All right, sounds good. Well, well under a minute. Well under yeah. a minute. <laughs> Don't want to give too much away. <laughs> um. Okay. Well, I think I will. I'll go second, and I'll I'll start timing myself now. Uh, the film I'm going for has a a little bit of continuity from one of our previous recommendations. Um. So. On the last show we did, Amanda recommended uh, Urwali about the uh, mascot at Stenhouse from your football club. Martin Lennon, uh, the maker of that, also made another film. Well, he's made several, but the, the one I'm recommending is called The Frying Game, which I caught at Edinburgh Short Film Festival in 2018, I think. And basically, 
goes to Stonehaven and he basically films the reactions of people trying deep fried Mars bars for the first time and talks to people about the sort of like the phenomenon which has become this curiously Scottish um, thing to identify with. It's a lot of fun. It's very funny. He has some fun with some of the transitions as well and it's just a very light but also entertaining and informative short documentary. Yeah, no, it, and also I think um, he the DP on that was also the same DP that um, and our friend Stuart Edwards who who was um, who did Orwali as well. So it ah, is okay. a con- continuity there. Mark. Okay, so the short one I recommend I'm recommending for sad reasons. Unfortunately, the filmmaker died last month. Incidentally, on exactly the same day as the Japanese filmmaker Nobuhiko Obayashi. Um, the filmmaker is called um, Bruce Bailey. The film is called Valentin de la Sirias. It's 10 minutes long. It takes place in Jalisco in Mexico. And the filmmaker joined with a family of farmers there. And he films everything in extreme close-ups. He finds this various skew ways of entering into their lives, either by filming the shadow of one of their horses or by uh, traipsing through some foliage. Um, all the time, or at least most of the time, there's a folk song which gives the the film it's title playing and in uh, in visual terms Bailey does what the folk song does for their lives generally which is honors them follows them and in the end immor- immortalizes them as well great lovely and um, i guess we've we've done quite well this time being under one minute right yeah uh, yeah i think, I'll, I think I'll, I was 53 it's not like not like, not like that time you and betty cheated with like oh <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll both do it and we'll talk about it for like three minutes total yeah <laughs> That's how we'll, well get around it. We're getting, we're getting better. <laughs> we're getting better at this. Um, so yeah, so we'll actually be putting the links to these films um, in the bottom of our description um, on YouTube and probably on our website and whatnot. Um, so what it, whichever way you're watching and and listening to this, um, you you can you can check out these short films. We highly recommend. Um, so we're doing one new thing this time. Um, which is, you know, we, we do a lot of new releases and, and stuff, but now that we're on lockdown um, or, you know, we're, we're, we're relying on the, the, the internet to, we've thought about, let's go back and see films we maybe missed or, um, or, or you know, as a group we'd, we'd like to recommend. So I've challenged the team to um, one person each time to, um, to pick a film and you know that that's easily accessible online and that we could um all watch together and come back and review and it doesn't necessarily have to be new it could be you know very very old um so um mark i'm challenging you today um to 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 take us into next time and we'll come back and 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 give our review so what do you have um what do you dare for us to watch Okay, um this is a a very heady proposition i apologize in advance but it is actually a completely fascinating movie um which incidentally i have watched i want to say five times in 18 months because i just get a few wow. <laughs> while down the line and i want to go i want to be right back in there um the film is called the task it's directed by a photographer and conceptual artist called leela dare um it played the festival circuit in 2017 so it played sheffield dock fest and um true false in the states um, incidentally, it came out or it premiered the exact same year as um, The Work, the film, uh, also about group therapy in a Californian um, prison. But the emphasis of this one is completely different, though in both films, 
uh, you'll find a quality of barreling right into the heart of a matter. And within five minutes, there are some there's some serious stuff um, analysed straight away. Um, the only way I can describe it, and I won't describe it too much, um, is to say it's um, there are certain moments where somebody just tells the truth and it's like watching someone adjust a Bunsen burner and the flame changes colour. It's absolutely electrifying. It's great. Um, the setup for the film um, is that it's a Tavistock conference. Uh, it's using the Tavistock method, which is a, a method of uh, essentially psycho psychoanalysis set up by a British uh, psychoanalyst called Wilfred Arbion. And uh, so they, they talk for two hours and that's it. Um, but the conversations are very, uh, very abrupt. It's very frustrating because there is no topic of conversation. Yeah, of course there is. There are a number of consultants in the room um, who are either medical professionals, counsellors, and they try... They, well, I have endless theories about this movie because so much of it is just wildly indeterminate, but that, like, the sitting with the contradictions that you have to in order to be in that room, even as a viewer, and this is really interesting in lockdown, I have to say. Um, the way it's set up is that there are six cameras in the room, so they're framing the people speaking. There's sound equipment on the roof, on the ceiling, rather, um, and these cameras are like catching uh, either the person speaking or candid reactions to that person from other people in the room. It is extremely interesting material. It, it does sound very interesting. I am a little worried about another lockdown film getting recommended to Amanda after I made her watch Vivarium for the last show. Though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, I was a little bold on my my review on that. I felt bad because it really was a good film, and I feel like that they never forwarded or retweeted our stuff because it was like, why did you make me watch this again? <laughs> but yeah, no, um, yeah, I'm really feeling the lockdown and uncertain days. But like maybe on a good day, I'll give this a whirl. Of course, I will watch it because you dared me and you mm -hmm. challenged us, and there will hopefully be some other people in our 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 group um that take the challenge as well because i know that jim and i will as certainly so that's it that's all we have um for cinetopia um the second remote edition um stay tuned next time where um we don't know what we're reviewing yet but we'll figure that out shortly um but uh let us know if you have any recommendations or you have any thoughts on this um you're always welcome to just write us on social media we're at cinetopia on Twitter and we're Cinetopia Hub on Instagram and um, Facebook. So we're always looking for for other ideas in terms of things that we can do and other recommendations of, of films to watch. Anyway, that's it for us um, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Right.